Good morning, City Hill. Great to see everybody this morning. You know, it's a great time to be alive. This week, uh, I had the privilege of going away for a couple days up to a camp that's at a place that they make available for pastors to pray and to seek the Lord. And Janet and I were able to go away, and I just realized how privileged we are, how grateful I am to be born in this generation. We live in the United States of America, the greatest nation on ever, really, on the face of the earth. It's great in what ways? Well, there's a lot of ways. Does it have problems? Yeah, it's got a lot of problems. But sometimes we focus so much on the problems that we forget the incredible privilege that we have today to be born at this time and in this land with great freedom. We can preach without worrying about being arrested, at least so far. We can gather together and worship, and none of us wonder if any guards are be coming through the door to arrest us or throw us in prison. That's not true around the world. We have the freedom to believe and to hold to that belief without wondering if we're going to be killed or arrested. We have the Word of God. We take this. I mean, I don't know. I was looking the other day. We were cleaning out a room, and I realized how many Bibles I have. It's like, oh, yeah, I got that Bible. Oh, yeah, look at that. I got different languages, Bibles. I'm thinking, wow, we just have these Bibles besides on our phones and our laptops and our, our tablets. So many people don't have access to the Word of God. We live in a wonderful time of we can be connected to people through technology. We all have these phones, right? And you can connect to people all over the world. Our children have lived all over the world, and we just call them up and we see them face to face. You know, our phones, the Dick Tracy watch, now we own them. We can talk to people and Skype and see our kids all over. It's an amazing time to be alive. And I just felt that gratefulness of God in my heart to say, instead of looking at all the challenges we face, and they are many, it's good to stop and be thankful. So let's thank the Lord this morning. Jesus, I am thankful for your goodness. I am thankful for the ability to preach the word of God with boldness and without fear. God, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thank you for the brotherhood and that, God, you have revealed yourself to us. We don't deserve it, God, but you've been so kind and so good to us. Father, in the midst of all the challenges we carry, God, may our hearts be filled with gratitude for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The story of the Bible has always been the story of God's relationship with man. Many, many stories inside this Bible that, are, that reveal God's love for us and his way of connecting, the God of all creation connecting with us. The Bible tells us how a holy God, a righteous God, a sinless, pure, almighty God, God of heaven and earth has chosen to stoop down to have relationship with us. How is that possible? How can the God, the creator of the world, have relationship knowing you, knowing the hairs on your head? That's the God that we serve. But of course, we complicated the matter back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. And sin separated them from that holy God, because that God, he can't have sin and darkness, because in him is no darkness, he is light. And man 
You know, we can point to Adam and Eve, but you know what? We did the same thing, right? We uh, all are guilty. And sin, we don't talk about enough. Sin is a horrible thing with very severe consequences because sin separates us from God. Sin is not a slip-up or a oops or, oh, I made a little mistake. We sometimes look at sin as an opinion or just the way we want to live, being natural. But sin is an absolute thing that we have committed as mankind but also as individuals that has separated us from a holy God. We say things like, well, you know, everybody's human. Or we say things like, you know, what's the big deal anyway? I mean, who cares? We say things like, nobody's perfect. And in that point, I think we get it right. Nobody's perfect. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. Nobody's perfect. But not as an excuse. It's a statement of fact that all of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, well, so what's the big deal? Well, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. And that just doesn't mean you're going to die someday. It means a death, an eternal separation from God. And that's very, very serious business. I'm watching my sweet mother as she's in her last season of life. She told me yesterday, I think I'm going to die today. And I said, you've said that to me for many days, for many weeks. (laughs) And mama, we're just going to enjoy every day. She said, but you know, I'm ready. I am ready. And you know what? She's ready. And when that day comes, when we lose sweet Norman Norrell to this earth, there'll be tears. We'll miss her. But knowing her readiness with God, knowing that her eternity is set with Jesus, there'll be rejoicing. There'll be joy going. She gets her reward. She's not moving towards eternal death, but she's moving towards eternal life with her Savior and with the people that have gone on before. And so there'll be joy in the midst of that. Sin, unrepented sin, sin that we've not been saved of, the results are death. And so as a result of our sin as mankind, God had to figure out how do I relate to sinful us? How do I relate to mankind who is sinful? So the Old Testament, God laid out an incredible system how he related to his people who were sinful. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given the animal to you to make an atonement or to make forgiveness for your souls upon the altar, since it's the life blood that makes atonement. And in, in Hebrews, jumping ahead to the New Testament, the Bible lets us know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sin. So when there is sin, there is a need for 
the shedding of blood for forgiveness to take place. That's in the Old Testament. They would bring animals. On a regular basis, the children of Israel would come to the tabernacle, which at first was a mobile tent. And I was reading about this tent, and I thought, wow, there are about two million Jews traveling through the desert. And traveling through a desert is tough if you're a group of six. I've had some privileges of traveling North Africa in Muslim caravans. And man, I tell you, you have water and you have provisions and you have vehicles and you're moving through a desert and it's an inhospitable place. There were two million of them. And they would move and it said the cloud of by day and the cloud of fire by night would move as it would, as God would move it. Sometimes they'd be in a place for weeks, sometimes for a day. Just can't imagine. They're going, oh, it moved again. We got to pack it up. And two million people would follow the cloud of God. And so they built a tabernacle, which was a place of worship, in the center of their camp, surrounded by the 12 tribes. And in that tabernacle, they would have their sacrifices to restore their relationship with God. Then that became the temple, the massive, beautiful, ornate temple of God in Jerusalem. And in these places, they would bring an animal, oftentimes a lamb, a spotless, pure, and perfect lamb, and that lamb would be sacrificed in their place. I thought, man, that must have been a harsh face of reality. You know, while I sinned, sure, I did something wrong. And then you take this beautiful, lovely lamb and you bring it to the altar and they kill that, blood, that lamb and there's blood and there's sound and there's the horror, really, of saying, because of my sin, this animal died for in my place. That must have made sin very tangible and very stark and harsh to the people, as it should be. And all of these sacrifices were done by the priests. The priests would be at the temple. People would come in. There must have been a long line. And they would come in, bringing their animals. You should try to imagine the marketplace. They're bringing the animals to be sacrificed, to be killed as atonement for their sins. And these priests would stand in the gap between us and God. The people didn't just go in their backyard and sacrifice the animal. They'd bring it to the priests who were intermediaries. They would stand in the gap. And then once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. Behind the curtain, between the holy place and the Holy of Holies, was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And once a year, the high priest would venture in to make atonement for the people. And this was such a sober and serious event that the, they were afraid many times that the high priest would not come out. That he, if he had something wrong, maybe sin or something that he did wrong, he'd be struck dead in front of the altar. So what they did to make provision for that, the priest would have bells around his robe 
And if they heard the bells moving, they figured he's still alive. And then they had a rope that they would tie around his ankle that if he died, then they'd be able to haul him out under the curtain without having to go in and they would die themselves going before the altar. This is a very wonderful, great privilege for the high priest, but also you'd want to make sure you're right with God before you went behind the curtain. So this was the custom of the people of Israel. And this system of sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of our sins changed with the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And with that, we all could say amen. It changed because Christ became, you talk about John saying, behold, the Lamb of God. That wasn't just a title. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. This was not just another animal. This was God in flesh, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And Christ was slain for us when he went to the cross. That became the sacrifice. And so that how can we be freed from sin? How can we be cleansed? We trust in Christ. We trust in his sacrifice that he paid the price so that you and I don't have to die for our sins. I was reading through uh, Isaiah 500 years or more before the birth of Christ. And just the beauty of what he wrote, speaking prophetically, looking towards Calvary. We read, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Hear that. He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement. It was upon him that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're all sinners. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a beautiful explanation of what happened at Calvary. That Christ took upon himself all of our sins once and for all so that we could be forgiven. So our salvation and our forgiveness is no longer found in temple sacrifices. No longer do we have a lineup of animals that we need to kill and bleed for our sins. But that Christ has made the way to restore sinful men and women to a holy God. So that changed at Calvary. But today, that's the backdrop for the next point I want to make today that I really want to bring home to us. Because when Christ died at Calvary, there was another watershed event that took place. Many things took place at his death. But the other watershed event, and a watershed means there was a before and an after Matthew 27, verse 50, tells us at the death of Christ, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. 
And at that moment of Christ's death for our sins, here's what happened. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Say it from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. What in the world was going on? Christ dies, and over at the temple, this curtain was split from top to bottom. See, something in the spiritual world was changing. Something was being transformed. What was happening in the spiritual world also was expressed in the physical world. There was an earthquake, and rocks were broken. We don't know how big of rocks. We don't know what happened, but the earth shook. Something major had taken place. And the curtain of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Now, this temple curtain was a massive curtain. We think of a curtain like hanging over the drapes in our living room. Not like that. The temple curtain, this roof is probably close to 30 feet high, maybe a little bit less. The curtain was estimated to be about 30 feet tall and about 60 feet wide. So not quite as wide as this room. A picture across this room, a massive curtain. And the curtain is thought to be about four inches. It's at a hand's breadth, so about four inches thick. So this is a wall of curtain. This is a massive thing. They said to install it, it took 300 priests to move this curtain. I don't know how they must have looked like, how many ropes, what they would have done, but it was a massive wall. I'm sure no light would move through this, and it never even moved in the breeze. This massive wall of curtain that would separate the people from the Holy of Holies, where only one man would enter each year. There was a separation between the holiness of God, access to God and the altar and the people. And the only bridge between that was the priests. And then Jesus died, and the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom. You know, that was during Passover weekend. I've never read anything. I was just trying to imagine what that must have been like for the priests who were in the temple at that time. You could never see past there. Only one man would ever go back each year All of a sudden, you're there, you're preparing for the Passover or whatever they were, that major weekend. There would have been people in the temple and all of a sudden, this ripping sound as this four-inch thick curtain rips. And there's the temple. I mean, there's the altar. Would Would they have fled in fear? Did they fall down in worship? Must have been a major thing that happened. But what was God trying to say to us when that temple curtain was ripped? You see, prior to Calvary, we needed intermediaries. We needed priests to sacrifice the animals so that we could be forgiven and once again restored to God. But when the curtain was torn, the division was erased and the door was opened for you and me. 
And it means that you and I, imagine us standing in that temple. You and I can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can boldly walk through that curtain where before it would have been death. We can boldly approach God. We don't need priests anymore to go there for us. You and I can boldly go to God. That's an amazing thing. That means you don't need me to go to God. And I say, hallelujah. You don't need a pastor or a priest to pray for you. It's, I will pray for you, that, but you don't need me to pray for you. You don't need pastors to pray for you because, oh, just I'm not a pastor, I'm not a minister. To the contrary. The scripture goes on in Hebrews 4, 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So he's the high priest. Let us hold fast to our confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I just want to pause for a moment on that. I love that scripture. When I pray in Jesus' name, I don't have a Savior who's going, can't believe you struggle with that. Can't believe you. He understands our weakness. He understands our struggle emotionally. He understands our temptations. It says, in every respect has been tempted as we are. If you let that play out, there's a lot of temptations in the world and Jesus experienced those temptations without sin. So here the temptation itself is not sin. And Jesus gives us the hope that we can conquer these temptations, that we can walk in righteousness even in a world full of sinful distractions. Jesus walked ahead of us and paved the way for us. And he says, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can go through the curtain and approach God directly with confidence. And even better than all that, that we have access. We have access to the throne of God is that God has made you and I to be priests. Now, I'll change that word to say ministers. I don't believe in a Christianity of spectator Christianity. I don't believe our Christianity is to come to church and watch the staff and those people do their religious thing and then go home. Christ calls each one of us to be ministers of the gospel. I want to say that again. That's your take home today. You are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm speaking to you, believing that you love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a minister. Tell somebody beside you. Say, you're a minister. You're a minister. What if you let that drop in? What if you said, wow, the Bible says it? I'm going to act that way. I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Not that you have to work at a church. But you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you go to work, you're a minister of the gospel there at work. When you go to your school, you're a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ in that school. When you're at home with your family, you're a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think we'd act and live differently if we understand who we are in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, You come to him, to Jesus, a living stone, who is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And you yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You're being built into a temple to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's the image, the reality, that's simply an image, but a reality that the Bible is speaking to us. It says, you are priests, you are ministers, and we are the temple. Now, when I grew up, there was a little chorus we used to sing. Some of you will remember this chorus, and I'm not going to sing it this morning, but it says, the words are, we are being built into a temple fit for God's own dwelling place, to the house of God, which is the church. So we are being built into a temple. So here's the reality. We are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are the temple where God dwells. God dwells among us, not this building. God dwells among our community as we act as ministers of the gospel. So Friday, I was in my first life group of this new phase. We had a great time. We met in a home. And what's the purpose of life groups? Well, they give us community. We have brothers and sisters walking with us. We get discipled as a group. All of that is very important. Be worthwhile if that's all that we got from our community. But it's more to it than that. It's that we together is where God dwells. That God dwells among his people, especially when we're walking in unity. And if we as City Hill can grow in our love and care for each other, looking outward to the world, but grow as a community, this is where God dwells. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't need that temple in Jerusalem anymore. There's been talk someday about rebuilding the temple. Cool. Like to take a tour of it sometime. But I don't think God needs a building to come dwell among mankind. He wants to be among us as the temple of God as we live in community. I'll read that again. You come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourself, like living stones, each one of us are a living stone being built into a spiritual house or a spiritual temple. So God wants to take you. Each one of us are one of those stones. Now the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. He's the one that sets the most important foundation of this temple, this spiritual temple. But each of us come and we each 
provide part of what it makes for that temple. That's why each one of us are so important. You may say, well, I'm not important. But you pull a stone out of the temple, you got a gap. You have something missing. And God wants to build us into his spiritual temple. So here we are. It's a new day with the salvation we have through Christ. The redemption of our souls comes through his blood shed for us so that we don't have to die. That is big news. And then the temple which has been destroyed, praise the Lord, we don't need it anymore because we become the temple. And each one of us has a job to do. Each one of us are important in that spiritual temple. I would love it if on your way to church or on your way to life group, if in your heart you were saying, God, what do you have me give today? God, who can I minister to today? God, who do you want me to encourage today? Lord, do you have a word that you want me to speak to somebody today? And the body was doing body ministry. I've had people sometimes when they have someone they want to get saved, they have a neighbor or somebody say, Pastor, I want to bring you over to meet my neighbor. They really need to get saved. Well, that's okay, cool. But I really want to say, you go do it. If you need a little help, let's meet. Let's talk about how to pray with somebody. But you don't need me to go meet your neighbor to lead them to Christ. Actually, there's people here that are better than me at that. But don't go get them either. You go do it. Because you are a minister. You're a minister of the gospel of Christ. And when we get that, then the body begins to function as the body is supposed to function. And we build each other up and we're caring for each other. And that's, folks, why I am such a strong believer in our life groups. They're really very simple. But they give us the opportunity to be prayed for, to care about each other in a very personal way. And the gospel of Christ is not large meetings, although they have their place. But they are, as the body of Christ, each person fulfills its role. You have the scripture that is in in Corinthians. He says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, I'm going to add in life groups, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, and everything must be done so the church may be built up. So their life groups are, what's your revelation you're bringing today? What's your tongue? What's the interpretation? They were moving in the gifts of the Spirit, and they were ministering, and they were building each other up. And that's what Christ has for us, that we would become a church where we realize, I'm a minister. I don't work at the church but I'm a minister. And I'm a part of this building, this spiritual building called the temple of God. And as we love each other, work together, care for each other, spend times in each other's homes, minister side by side, we grow. And God is glorified. You know, I, I love the fact that our life groups minister together. 
one of the things we're asking the groups to do is to find a ministry outlet for your group. It could be one of the ones that we have here at church, which are great. It could be something separate you do. But as you minister together, you bond together. If I may, uh, my good buddy, Bill Baker, one of the ways we formed a friendship back in high school is we went up to Birch Haven. And we were cutting down trees together and playing pranks together and having fun up at that camp our church used to own. And as we ministered together, as we worked together, God gave us a friendship. And that's lasted these 20 years, right? <laughs> yeah, I rounded up yeah, down a couple decades. Um, friendships are formed, relationships are formed as we are ministers together of the gospel. And I read here, one of the cool things, just end with this, is, you know, we are all, we used to be those who were cut off from the gospel. It was just the Jews. And you read in Ephesians 2.17, because in those days there were the Jews and the others, and we were those others, those Gentiles. But Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's us. And peace to those who are near. That'd be the Jews. For through Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. So we no longer need priests to intercede for us. So then you, the non-Jews, are no longer strangers and aliens. Hallelujah. We're no longer those strangers out there. We're no longer the foreigners. But... You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So folks, when Jesus died for you and for me, it ripped open the curtain. That which held us separate. That which separated us from a holy God. And when you pray this week, I pray that you can with boldness go to God. Not with pride, but with boldness approach God. Because the curtain has been opened for you as his son, as his daughter. And I also pray this week that you would let drop into your heart the truth that as followers of Jesus Christ, he's called you to be a minister of the gospel. Let that dwell in your heart. You are a minister of the gospel. Wherever you go, you are a minister of the gospel. A priest that God has anointed to make a difference, to shine his light, to be salt in this world. And you may say, well, Pastor Kent, I got problems. I say, welcome to the club. You don't have to be problemless to be a minister of the gospel. We just have to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and God wants to use us just as we are. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have opened the curtain. 
that you didn't just make a little gap so we could get through, but God, you ripped it wide open. Must have been dramatic, God. And Father, I pray that we would walk in the truth, not in the lies of the world, but the truth that you have made us ministers and that, God, when we act as ministers, that Jesus, and when we walk in love and community, that, Jesus, you are pleased to dwell among us. And, God, I ask that you would dwell among us as a church. That, Father, those who come through our doors or come into our life groups or into our homes would say, something different here. They'd encounter the living God. Father, I pray that you'd be pleased to live among us and that you would help us to walk out what it means to be ministers of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If, you've, uh, if you're not in a life group, we have tables over here. I encourage you, step into the community. Don't stay as a spectator. Step in. I know sometimes it's challenging. It can be a little intimidating. It's not really. A lot of wonderful people here. Step in. Be a part of what we're doing as a church. And as ministers, let's go out and love people in the love of God. It's not hard to find people who are hurting. It's not hard to find people who need prayer. Let's be effective ministers of the gospel of Christ. If you're a guest with us today, welcome. The ministry team or the welcome team and myself will be at a, at a table right there on the left-hand side going out.